stand for the reading of God's word. Today we will be reading from 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 21. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we, were, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting us and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Chase. Well, if you didn't get one of these on the way in, uh, there's some ushers that are going to just kind of walk up the aisles, just kind of flag them down. Uh, they want to get one of these into your hands. Uh, these we're going to be handing out in this series that we're doing on our identity. Uh, we're not going to be doing this long term, but we uh, want to do it during the identity series just so that you can have something to engage with uh, as we go through the text, as well as so that you can take it home and engage with the text on your own. Well, we are... Um, in this identity series, uh, because last week I shared with you uh, our identity statement as a church, as Wes uh, shared it with you as you came. We are a redeemed family who loves God and loves others. And each word in that statement comes from multiple places in Scripture. And over the next four or five weeks, we are going to open the text of Scripture and Scriptures that have informed that. We're not going to open every single text that informed those, because there's lots of them, but we're going to open a text that's informed kind of each of the, the words, phrases that are in the text, uh, in, in our statement. Well, today, I have the privilege of, of coming and talking about a text that informs us about the word redeemed, the first word in the statement. But before we jump into the text, when you hear the word redeemed, different things kind of pop in mind, like some practical things, maybe some biblical theological things that you've heard, and then there's kind of the summary statement that I read last week. So I just want to hit those really quick, and then we're going to jump into the text uh, together. So just practically, as you hear the word redeemed, oftentimes for us, we don't use that necessarily in day-to-day -day life, unless you're thinking about like redeeming a coupon or something. Like somebody gives you uh, a gift card or something to the market in St. Joe. You're like, oh, I can redeem this for a hunk of cheese, or maybe I can get me a coffee or a tea or any of the, you know, tasty things that you can find there, right? So we can th practically think about that. And yes, that's one way of defining redeem. Biblically, theologically, though, as you think about the word redeemed, um, in, in Bible times, when a debt was owed to someone, it often resulted in bondage. So they were kind of in bondage and to, 
till they paid off that debt. And redemption or being redeemed happened when the debt was paid. When the debt was paid, they were released from that. And so they would have been said to have been redeemed. So redeemed means a price was paid. And we were redeemed when we trusted in Christ. When Christ went to the cross, he redeemed us. And we'll talk more about that. Now, I want to make something clear that uh, the price that was paid was not paid to Satan because we often can think about the enemy there being the one that kind of keeps us in bondage or wants us to be in bondage. He's the bad guy. If we pay him off, he'll stop bugging us. No, the debt wasn't paid to him. The debt was paid to God. God is a holy God and he requires perfection. And when we don't attain to that because all have sinned, a debt needs to be paid to God. And when that debt is paid, redemption happens, but also reconciliation happens. Reconciliation happens with God. It brings us back into the relationship that was supposed to happen at creation. The, the, the oneness, that unity, that, that fellowship with God happens again when redemption happens. And when we say the word redeemed, it's not just something that happens in the past. Like, okay, that happened back then. That happened when I got saved. So yes, when you it has a past tense connotation to it, but it has an ongoing fruit in our lives. Yes, the event of Christ going to the cross, us being redeemed, happened in the past, but it has ongoing effect in our lives every day until we see Jesus face to face when we see the fruit of our redemption. So that's why we start with that word in our statement. Because it's not just something that happened long ago, but it's something that we want. It's the, the treasure that we have. And it's the foundation which we build the other stuff on. If we don't, you know, if we don't have redeemed, we don't have the family peace or the love God peace or the love others peace because we must have the redeemed part, which points us to Christ. So let's jump into the text. But before we do, let's just come to the Lord in prayer. Father, we need you this morning. We need you to open our eyes to the truth that's in your word. We thank you, God, that you have revealed yourself to us in your word, that your word is the foundation for all, that we understand you to be and, and how you revealed yourself to us and you revealed yourself to us in Christ. So open our eyes this morning, Lord. May we behold wonderful things out of your law, wonderful things about Christ. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. So when we say redeemed, we are saying we have been rescued out of darkness, our debt to God was paid, and we've been made alive by faith in Christ through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. So there's two truths as we come to this text that I want to uh, point out and, and draw out. Jesus redeemed us. So the first one is Jesus redeemed us uh, because Jesus died for all who place their trust in him. Look at the text, verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. So when it says died for all, I just want to bring clarification. So when I, in, in my point, it doesn't just say Jesus died for all, it says Jesus died for all who place their trust in him. So understand, as Paul writes this book, he's writing it to 
the Corinthians. He's writing it to the Corinthian church. Uh, it's likely his fourth letter, even though it's the second Corinthians. We have first Corinthians, second Corinthians, but in, in the writings, we see there were other letters that he wrote. So these are believers that he's writing to those that have, have trusted in Christ. And I just want to clarify, as we read this, uh, Jesus' blood is powerful enough to pay for the sins of every single person who has ever lived. It's that powerful. Unfortunately, there will be many who will reject Christ and not experience the benefit of his cleansing blood. So we don't believe in universalism in the sense that, you know, universalism says everybody gets saved. Everybody's going to go to heaven. doesn't matter what happens. You know, Jesus' blood covers all. Yeah, it's, it's powerful enough. If everyone trusted in Christ, his blood was powerful enough to, to pay for the sins of everyone. But not everyone will benefit because many will reject him. But Jesus died for all. And as we think about the significance of Jesus dying for us, there's some aspects of it that are just beautiful that we find in this text. We find that God initiates reconciliation. We see that in the beginning of verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us. There's something that Christ has done. Before we take steps of action as Christians, Jesus has done something. He has loved us. He loved us by going to the cross. So Jesus took the first step. We see in verse 18, look at the beginning of verse 18. All this is from God. Everything that was read, all this is from God. God took the initiative. Verse 19, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. God took the initiative in reconciliation. That's the, that's the beauty of even considering the word redeemed because it speaks to God's activity before we get to what our activity is. It speaks to God's pursuit. In 1 John 4, we read, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Something we'll unpack, that word propitiation, it kind of described later on, even though that word's not in here, but it's such a beautiful word. You know, it's a word that says that God's wrath has been turned away and his favor has been turned towards us. And we'll kind of unpack that as we get to verse 21. God initiated. But we also see is, is because Jesus died for all that everyone needs reconciliation. Everyone needs reconciliation. Why? I mean, it's, it says here Jesus died for all because he died. He had to do, die for a, a reason. He died because we were walking in darkness. We were blind to him. Sin created a separation between us and God, a chasm that we couldn't cross. So everyone needs to be rescued from darkness. Everyone has a debt to God that must be paid. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone does. 
And so because of this separation, because of this debt that's owed, there, there's a need for reconciliation. And that's the word we see in this passage time and again. And that's why there's an appeal by Paul in verse 20, the second half of verse 20. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He's imploring. He's urging, be reconciled to God. The call isn't, hey, just, you know, come and enjoy, uh, you know, nice people. Come be a part of this group of people. Come and your life is going to be better. No, the call to follow Christ is the call to leave everything and follow him. And so if you've never trusted in Christ, there's a call here that God is making to you. Be reconciled to God. You're separated from him. You have a need of reconciliation. And you today can repent and believe. And if you're not sure of that, some people can be like, I'm not sure. Has that really happened? I'd love to talk with you after the service. Wes would love to talk with you. I'm sure anybody on the worship team that you see would love to talk with you. Be reconciled to God. Because everyone needs reconciliation. And that reconciliation is made possible because of Christ's finished work. Christ's finished work made reconciliation possible. So look, and, and I'm going to explain what finished work means. So let's look at verse 15 and 16. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. We don't regard Christ according to the flesh any longer because he is now seated at God's right hand. He's seated at God's right hand, interceding for us, waiting for God to give the word for him to return and to, to bring us to himself. But even though we don't regard him like according to the flesh, he's not in the flesh anymore. His life in the flesh was significant. His perfect life was significant. And so also was his death, as we see in verse 15. And he was raised. His life was significant because it needed to be perfect so that he could be our substitute. His death was significant because blood is required to pay for sins. As we studied the book of Hebrews, we talked about the sacrificial system and, and we know that in Christ, he died once for all sins. So his death was significant. His resurrection is significant because he's not in the grave anymore. He has been raised. He's defeated death and hell. So all of that is important as we think about being redeemed, his life, death, and resurrection. So when we talk about the finished work of Christ, or if you hear that term, that's what we mean. I mean, it can sound kind of super spiritual, but it's really it's encompassing all of Jesus' life. Because in verse 18, it says, all this from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And this finished work is wonderfully displayed in one verse, which is verse 21 which says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
I heard theologian Don Carson uh, say once, or I read it somewhere, he, he said that if he could only preach on one verse in all of the scriptures, it would be this verse. And as a, a younger Christian, I was like, oh, I should pay attention to that. But the, the more that I've meditated on this particular verse, the more I see, see the gospel displayed in this verse. There's so much meat in this verse because in it, we understand the finished work of Christ. In it, we understand that Jesus became sin for us. That speaks to a theological term that's called imputation. You don't have to memorize that word or even remember that word, but it, it's a term that's kind of borrowed from like a banking concept. It means to put to one's account. So when, when, someone, deposits, when someone deposits money into your account, like some electronic way, you know, Google Pay, Apple Pay, Venmo Pay, whatever pay, like people can put money in your account. Most of the time you think that's a good thing. Oh, I like when people put that to my account. Ooh, it's big. There's a message that goes to everybody else. But when Jesus gave his life on the cross, all of our sins were put to his account. And he was treated as though he had committed each and every one of those sins. He didn't become a sinner because First Peter tells us he, didn't, he knew no sin. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. But while Jesus was on the cross, he suffered the full wrath of God, not because he did anything, but because our sin was committed to his account. In Galatians 3.13, Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus was fully conscious when the waves of God's wrath for each and every sin that was committed, when he, when he experienced that wrath, he, he was fully conscious and, and he went to the cross willingly. He went to the cross willingly. That's why we see love displayed in its greatest wonder at the cross of Christ. He did it willingly. He became sin for us. But also in that, all that happened, we were made righteous. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So our sins were put to Jesus' account and his perfect life, the life that he lived without sin, and the benefits that would come from living a life without sin and favor with God were credited to our account. This great exchange took place. 
So God no longer holds our sin against us. It seems like, it seems like, wait, 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 isn't there a catch or something? I mean, I felt this kind of practically when we were first married, just had, you know, first few years, had a couple of kids, barely making ends meet. You know, we didn't make enough money to pay federal taxes. And I remember we filed our taxes like the first time after having kids. We got this, this money back. I was like, how, something wrong here? We, got, we didn't put anything in and we got money back. I don't want you to be distracted by the IRS system and I don't want anyone to get grumpy and complain about But like, it was just like, we, we got something that, and, and it, it's, it's ours. It seemed too good to be true. How much more infinite is the news that the righteousness of Christ is credited to our account? That when, when God looks upon us, he sees the righteousness of Christ. He doesn't see the goodness that we've done that, that earns us kind of favor with him. No, he sees all the goodness that Christ did that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus died for all who would place their trust in him. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And Jesus died giving us new life. God's pursuit of us gives us new life. We see in verse 17, look back at verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That phrase, in Christ, is one we want to treasure and understand and grow in the depths of uh, the, the truth of that because it's a profound statement that describes a wonderfully intimate union in Christ, our union with Christ. And commentator Philip Hughes just really unpacks it. He says the expression in Christ sums up as briefly and as profoundly as possible the inexhaustible significance of man's redemption. He says it speaks of security in him who has himself born in his own body the judgment of God against our sin. It speaks of acceptance in him with whom alone God is well pleased. It speaks of assurance of our future in him, who is the resurrection and the life. It speaks of the inheritance of glory in him, who as the only begotten son is the sole heir of God. It speaks of participation in the divine nature in him, who is the everlasting word. It speaks of the knowledge of the truth and being free in that truth in him, who himself is the truth. All this and very much more can ever be expressed in human language is meant by being in Christ. And there is so much more that we could describe. Plumbing the depths of being in Christ is a pursuit that we will have until we see Jesus face to face. But in understanding it and embracing it and delighting in it, and we will grow deeper in our intimacy with him and it will change us. 
Because in Christ, we are transformed. We're transformed. We're a new creation. And that's what that means, new. Not old, not reworked, not cleaned up. New, like original. Never happened before. New. Creation, like from God, as we talked about God's word being God breathed and God, when God speaks, stuff is created out of nothing. So new creation, unique and individual. You as a unique individual are made brand new. Romans 6, 4 says, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We have been made alive. We've been made new. And it's not just a, a detailed car that's been kind of cleaned up, but more like a butterfly, I know you probably haven't heard car and butterfly in the same sentence because usually that turns out to not be good. But when, if you've ever had your car detailed, what do they do? Maybe you've done it yourself. Maybe you take it in. They like clean every crevice and nook and cranny of everything and clean the outside and it shines and it smells and they got that thing stained in the carpet that you don't even know what it is because it's been stained so many times and it's just really nice. But even when they detail your car, it still has 100,000 miles on it. It's not new. But in the, the image of the butterfly, you've, you've got a, a caterpillar, right? I, I'm intimately acquainted with this process because my mom was a kindergarten teacher. And every August, we needed to hunt for caterpillars because she needed some chrysalises in her class. So we would go, we would find the milkweed, we'd find the monarch butterfly, like the caterpillar, and we would we would get them, and so obviously the process, they, they spin a cocoon around themselves, and then, you know, before too long, then they bust out of it, and there's this beautiful butterfly, right? It's just awesome. But if you saw a butterfly, like, crawling around like a caterpillar, you'd be like, there's something wrong. And we can do that as Christians. We can, we can think we can think we're like the, the detailed car. Yeah, I, I mean, I know, I've been, I know I've been cleaned up, but there's still a little something that's just kind of lingering on there. And, you know, I just, I just need to come to church on Sunday because it, it makes me feel good. Or maybe, maybe you believe that oh, if I come to church on Sunday, then maybe my sins will be forgiven. God wants us to understand when we come to Christ and we trust in him, we are made new not by something that you do, but by something that Christ has done. And when we gather, we're reminding ourselves of this truth. We want to treasure this truth because it makes all the difference in our life. Like I said, it's the foundation for even as we, we talk about our identity as a church, it's, we don't just have like four pillars of things that we're learning. No, like we don't have the other ones without this understanding of being in Christ, without this understanding of being redeemed. We don't have being in a family because we're not in the family of God if we're, if we're not redeemed. We don't, we don't have this place to belong as we're going to learn about next week. We, don't, we won't have our hearts directed to want to love God because we won't be redeemed. We'll still be in darkness. We won't want to love others, whether that's sharing the gospel or serving others without this foundation of being redeemed, of being in Christ. It changes 
everything. And it does make us, and we're made ambassadors, and I'm not even going to delve into all the details that we could with that. Certainly we become ambassadors for Christ, but that kind of speaks to what's going to be what happens as we come to the end of the identity statement? Because we are redeemed, then we're going to share that love with others in practical ways, in sharing the gospel. So you can kind of see the connection how being redeemed bears the fruit in one's life. But it's not about an effort. And I was freshly reminded of that this week. Thank you for all of those of you who prayed for our family. Angie's dad went home to be with Jesus earlier this week. But as I considered his life, he was 50-ish years old when he came to Christ. He'd been married for 33 years. His wife had prayed for him and many others. People had shared the gospel with him. But when Larry came to Christ, a new life was born. And Larry isn't, wasn't, now he's in glory he, he wasn't like this outgoing, I got to be the center of the party, kind of just conversate with, with people like this. He would, he would hate it that I was talking about him right now because if he was here, he'd be sitting in a corner in a, in a party. He'd be sitting in a corner talking to someone if he even showed up at the party because he just didn't like to be around people all the time because he, he was an introvert. But he had had this new life. He was devouring God's word and he was beginning to serve in different capacities. And I saw it because I met him. When I met him, he did not know Christ. He didn't know him. But right before I asked Angie to marry me, I went to him and I asked for his blessing. And he had just become a Christian like a month before or so. And he said, as long as you have the Lord, you'll be fine. Like even as a new believer, like he got it. Because it's true. And then over time, just him becoming more aware of the gospel and being redeemed changed him all the more. He didn't, he didn't do this because of religion, because of, he was checking off a box, because for years he didn't show up to church on a Sunday because he's like, I'm not following those rules. They told some stories about things he used to do before he knew Jesus from wrecking his mom's car to all kinds of stuff because he raced motorcycles and it was crazy. So he wasn't coming to do rules, but when he encountered this wonderful message of the gospel and it bore the fruit that a guy who was an introvert in his last days was sharing the gospel with nurses who would come, with doctors who would come, not because he felt that he needed to do that because he knew his days were drawing near and he wanted to make sure he, had, he got enough points with God. That wasn't his heart at all. Like he just was becoming more aware of what Jesus had done for him. He resonated with every song we sang and scripture that we read because he was redeemed. He became a new creation in Christ. And so for us as a church body, we start with redeemed because of the texts of Scripture that point us to what Christ has done. But we want to treasure the fact that God was the one that pursued, that Jesus is the one that won the victory for us. It's not about the things that we do, though we will do things that does birth something in us. But we start with what he's done, and we want to treasure this truth. 
We could have just parked it on verse 21. And we want to personalize that verse. So if you have the sheet, we'll, we'll put it up on the, we're going to put 2 Corinthians 5.21 up on the screen. And what I want you to do, we're not changing scripture, we're not rewriting scripture, but I want you to personalize the truth of this verse. And in this place where you would read the word our or the word we, put your name. Put your name so that you understand. For Adina's sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, Adina might become the righteousness for God, of God. For Chris's sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, Chris might become the righteousness of God. For Sam's sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, Sam might become the righteousness of God. And I could go through every one of your names. Because that is the wonderful, glorious truth that we want to visit and revisit and, and delight in and savor. Because it's the foundation for, for what we believe as we have seen in Scripture. And that's why when we gather, we regularly have communion. And we're going to take communion together. I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward uh, to serve the elements. Because we want to remember what Christ has done. And before we come forward, the, the scriptures tell us when we take the Lord's Supper, we should come in a worthy manner. And I, I heard recently um, that Tim, Tim Keller said this. He said, the only way to take the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner is to know that you're not worthy. To come humbly, to realize you need Christ. So whether you realize you've never trusted in Christ, now's the time for you to repent and believe, or whether you just realize you need God to meet you. Maybe, maybe it's praying and asking God to forgive you for something or giving you a vision to be reconciled with someone. You come because you're aware that there's someone else who was worthy because this, this truth that we've been talking about, this message isn't about taking the hill. All right, we're going to take the hill for Jesus. We're going to do this for Jesus. No, understanding 2 Corinthians 5.21 is about realizing that someone else took the hill. He walked the hill called Calvary, carrying his own cross that he would be hung on to shed his blood that we would be redeemed, that we would be reconciled to God. So that slide's going to be on the screen as you come and take the elements. Consider the truth that's there. Savor that truth. And get the elements. You can go back to your seat, spend some time praying, and then I'll come back up and we'll take the elements together. Let's delight in this amazing truth of the gospel.